Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Today's episode is a real treat for me. It's a conversation with someone who I have admired and learned a lot from and have looked up to for a long time in the health and nutrition space. Rob Wolf is my guest. For those of you who are not familiar with Rob, Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and a two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of his books, The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob has been deep in the paleo and low-carb world for decades and knows more about those topics than just about anybody on the planet. And in this episode, we talked about Rob's personal health journey and how he got interested in the paleo diet and low carb in the first place. We also talked about Rob's latest book, Sacred Cow, which he co-authored with Diana Rogers and which dives into the world of regenerative agriculture and explains why well-raised meat is good for us and good for the planet. And if that sounds familiar, it is because I have recommended it on the podcast several times. I'm a huge fan of this book. And Rob was also the producer of a new documentary film, also called Sacred Cow, which covers the same material as the book. And it was narrated by Nick Offerman, which is amazing, and I can't recommend it enough. Rob is also a total badass in his own right. He's not a climber, but he holds a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is one step below black belt, in case you didn't know that, like I didn't before I looked it up just now. And he's also a former California state powerlifting champion and was on a survival TV show some years ago where he killed an elk with a hand-thrown spear. Let me repeat that. He killed a wild elk with a spear. Unfortunately, we did not have time to talk about that in this episode, but we did cover quite a few topics from the paleo diet to prioritizing protein to carbs for athletes and when low carb might not be appropriate to considerations for a meat inclusive diet and a lot of other good nuggets. I think we captured a lot of good, actionable advice in this episode. And if you want to learn more, Rob's written three books and he has a podcast of his own. So plenty of resources in the show notes. If you feel curious about anything at the end of this episode and want to do a deep dive. But again, I thought this was an awesome episode and I hope it's helpful. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive into the world of nutrition with Rob Wolf. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. Just making sure I have the right things turned on here. Looks like it. What's new? <laughs> Not a whole lot. Are you uh, are you in Montana right now? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, you guys have relocated a few times in the last few years. How how are you liking it there? Uh, we love it. We love it. Um, definitely feels like home. The kids don't hate me for moving them to Texas. So uh, yeah, it's good. It's That's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, well, I'm recording already. I won't. I don't plan to use the uh, video for anything. So feel free to. Oh, okay. Pick your nose, whatever you want to do. I'll just uh, use the audio, and I edit this. Okay. If um, 
you know, if either of us stick our foot in our mouths, we can just chop it out. So I've um, always assume I have no net. So I just <laughs> okay. kind of plow forward. And if I screw something up, I call it performance art and that's it. So yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, do you have a cutoff time today? Probably right at the top of the hour. Okay. Uh, uh, just, just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, well, I want to give an, a little bit of an overview then of what I hope to do with this conversation because uh, first off, it's an honor to have you here. I'm really excited about this. I think you're the first non-climber to come on the show, but I think I had you oh, on my cool. list from cool. uh, from day one. I was like, I, I would love to talk to Rob Wolf someday and ask all my burning questions. Um, yeah, but of course we have, there, there's way more that I would love to dig into than we possibly have time for today. And thankfully, you've written three amazing books that really go into all this stuff in detail and you have your own podcast. So I think what I want to do rather than trying to capture the entire paleo solution story or wire to eat or even sacred cow, I have a just a couple questions that I want to dig into on each of those three topics. And then we can point people towards your other material if they want to do a deep dive. Ooh. But yeah, that's kind of what awesome. I have in awesome. mind for today. But um, first off, I, I want to kick things off, actually. I, I can't pass up this opportunity. So I have this kind of theme going on the show of asking people what they had for breakfast, because that's my go-to soundcheck question. I actually stole it from Tim okay. Ferriss, and then it just kept being interesting. So I just keep asking it. But I would love, I can't not ask Rob Wolf. I'm so curious. What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had uh, two hamburgers, a scoop of blueberries, probably about a half cup of blueberries, and then a couple of big handfuls of uh, macadamia nuts. Okay. That, that's what I've had so far. That yep. sounds very paleo, uh, low carb. Uh, yeah, that's that's yeah. really interesting. I would love to just hear you uh, talk us through why each of those three things, if you wouldn't mind. Oh gosh. Um, the hamburger, because it was cooked from the night before, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a, man, there's a, that's a really good question, but you know, there's a, there's layers to it. Like we could geek out on the macronutrient profile and just like focus on that. But, um, which I mean, I've eaten more or less kind of a low carb ketogenic diet for 23 years now have, tinkered trying to do forays into other ways of eating um i i have celiac disease uh, so i'm very gluten intolerant um don't really handle carbs that well i can end up on kind of a carb roller coaster if i eat them too too often and too much so that's just kind of been my good operating parameter like i am not really a a tri-fuel motor i'm kind of a, a primarily fat-fueled motor and that's just kind of where where things work well. So compositionally, that's kind of why I went for that. And then convenience is a huge deal. You know, mm. I mean, uh, I, I cooked, so I, I bought a Traeger this year. I, I kind of, you oh, know, nice. my Weber broke after like 15 years. It finally died. I had jerry rigged that thing so many times. Um, some of my jerry rigging was less good than others. And I I'd almost like blew it up once and stuff. And it was finally like, okay, I got to, you know, have a moment and put, put this Weber to, to rest and was convinced to get a Traeger and huge surface area to cook on. It makes the, it, it even really marginal meat taste phenomenal. And so I, I cook a bunch of meat when we, we do cook. It's my wife, my daughters, my jujitsu coach is actually staying with us right now. Um, he's from okay. South Korea and he's, 
guest teaching here in Kalispell. He just did a seminar last week. And then my wife's father-in-law has been staying with us. So like I'm, I'm, you know, cooking a lot of food, but that convenience thing is huge. Like I, I planned ahead, cooked extra food so that we would have dinner and then, um, breakfast, lunch options for most of the house the following day. Not everybody wants hamburgers for breakfast. Some people do them for lunch, but I just had enough left there. And then we always just have some type of fresh fruit, ideally some fresh berries available in the fridge. Like the kids just go in and grab that and kind of self-regulate on that. And then we have a variety of, of nuts around. So, I mean, it was both uh, nutrition and also convenience, you know, like I just heated up the hamburgers blueberries were already washed in, in, in the fridge. And then the, the macadamias were just grab and go. And I usually grab a, uh, a half cup, you know, measuring cup, scoop, scoop some of those, you know, an overflowing half cup. So then I end up like self-regulating a little bit because mm. I could eat six cups of macadamia nuts in the sitting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will shit like a goose later. And so it's not doing me any nutritional benefits and it's expensive. And, 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 and at the end of the day, I'm consuming way more calories than what I needed a given go. So I guess there's kind of multiple layers as to the why on the breakfast and that that's some of unpacking it. Well, that's perfect. I really wanted to capture just how you think about some of this stuff. And, and that gives people a really good kind of overview into that or a glimpse into how you think about nutrition and eating. Um, I'm curious. So for me, a couple of years ago, I I went to a more savory breakfast. I don't even remember what first kicked that off. I think it was experimenting with uh, like the slow carb diet. That was kind of my first mm -hmm. foray into a conscious way of eating. And I've never gone back. And it was, I remember it feeling really profound, this switch, like, oh, you don't have to have something sweet for breakfast. You don't have to have right. dessert for breakfast. But for whatever reason, for 25 years, that was just the way that things were. I'm curious, how do you have two younger girls or two, two yep. daughters? How do they do with that? Do they, I assume they've been brought up, you know, having hamburger for breakfast as a normal option. Do they get on board with savory breakfast? Yeah. And I mean, we've, we've never really eaten differently. And so like we have dinner for breakfast and we'll do omelets for dinner. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 uh, there's, there's not a lot of, um, we just never ended up in that scene where like breakfast cereal is breakfast and mm. like croissants and, and, and that type of stuff. If we go out to eat, um, they might get like some gluten-free, uh, pancakes or French toast. Um, every once in a while we'll make something at home too, but that, that's stuff that's kind of nice to eat out because it's just like messy and involved to put it together. So I'm like, Oh, let's go out to eat and get that. But, and, and, you know, even on that, that count. The main thing that I do nutritionally with them is I kind of pester them. You got to eat your hunk of protein. It's kind of like the speed bump. You get through that. And then I'm, it's not that I don't care, but they, they have lots of latitude beyond that. Mm. Um, because I just noticed that they end up self-regulating if they're on point with the protein. Um, whereas if that protein is gone or deficient, they will really hammer kind of some garbage carbs. And then our, our kids are, they're, kids like any kid you know they have their ups and downs but they don't really have those like freak out meltdowns you know where they're just like screaming and and going crazy the, the one or two times that's happened is when they 
they just serially get, ex, you know, their meals are just like poor composition, like garbage carbs, garbage carbs, garbage carbs. And then by like the third meal of that, like they're just kind of coming on un, unhinged. And, uh, a lot of folks, when they come hang out with us, if they have kids, um, they're kind of like, dude, your kids like never really freak out. Like they'll get angry and they punch each other. They both do jujitsu. The other day, one of them <laughs> had the other one Perfect. in a footlock and I'm like, no footlocks <laughs> on your siblings. You know, it's like, I don't need like a destroyed knee, you know, when they're like seven and nine years old, but, um, but they just don't, I, I sound like a dick, but like I, I just being in the supermarket and you see people with their kids and the kid is just like red faced and they're just like melting down. Mm. And I'm like, dude, that kid's having like a hypoglycemic event. And I, I would be in the same state. It's hangry. I was there. And yeah, so it, uh, you know, this is just kind of the way that they've always eaten. And even if we eat out or we kind of kick our heels up or whatever, um, they, even when they eat over at friends' houses or their cousins in particular, they'll, you know, like breakfast and dinner and stuff like that. They're like, can I have a little more protein before I have the ice cream or something oh, like wow. that? It's pretty cool. Cause uh, you know, people will be like, oh, you're going to create eating disorders and everything. And I'm like, I don't know. I I'm really trying not to like, we don't emotionalize the food. I just tell them that and, and I will ask them, do you feel better eating this meal versus that meal? Like I feel way better eating this one, but this thing tastes good. I'm like, cool, get it. Just eat some more protein when you have this other thing and you'll be good to go. And they're like, okay. And at seven and nine years old, they do that now. Like they, they consciously, they're like, well, I'm going to go do jitsu and then I'm going to play with my cousins all day. So I want to eat a lot of protein and have the ice cream so that I've got some energy to do all this stuff. And I'm <laughs> like, I, I think that's pretty legit, you know, and they're both, um, 98th percentile in height and they like little capped delts and everything like the <laughs> jacked, you know, so it, it, it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm excited to follow them and see what they do with uh, jujitsu in years to come. <laughs> yeah. If they continue to do it. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. You've mentioned uh, celiac and you've mentioned your jujitsu. And I hate to do this to you because I know you've done this, you've done a ton of these, but you're also very good at it. I'd love to just have you just walk us through a little bit of your story. We don't have to go into a ton of depth here, but sure. um, some of your your background, I know you studied biochemistry. I'd, I'd love to hear what you were focused on and how you ended up transitioning into this world of, of paleo and tinkering with low carb and um, and now sacred cow, if you could just take us on that journey for people. Yeah, a very, very long time ago now, I did an undergrad in biochemistry and was looking at either an MD route or a PhD route. Um, was really interested in cancer and autoimmunity research. And I was actually doing some, some bench lab research on lipid metabolism as it relates to cancer and autoimmunity. But I uh, have always been interested in human performance, you know, nutrition and whatnot. And, and it experimented a lot with my food early on. And I was tinkering with a high carb, low fat, vegan type diet. And for me, it just really didn't work. I ended up developing ulcerative colitis at the age of 26, 27. And it was pretty crippling. I'm about, I'm five foot nine, about 165 pounds, um, reasonably good shape. And at the low ebb of my, um, my ulcerative colitis, I was 125, 130 pounds. Like, oh. so if you imagine like 30 pounds, left, 40 pounds less of me right now, like there, there wasn't a lot there. I was very, very sick. And the, the only options I really had on the table were uh, surgery and immunosuppressant drugs, which I, I knew 
long-term, both of those were really poor outcomes. Like, and, and, you know, I was in my mid to late twenties. Like I, <laughs> that, that wasn't good, you know, for uh, boating well for my future, uh, kept poking around and looking at stuff and through kind of an interesting chain of events, this idea of an ancestral diet or a paleo type diet got on my radar. And that was in 1998. I, I did some, some quick Google searching at, at, with the new fangled search engine called Google at that time and found a little bit of information on paleolithic diets. And what was interesting is that a ton of what was discussed there talked about gut and autoimmune issues that have come as come about as a consequence of eating what we would call like a modern or, or, you know, Neolithic or, or post-industrial diet. So it made a lot of sense. And I was sick enough that I just, you know, I was like, if this thing kills me, it would probably be better because I, I don't really see particularly better outcome in the future anyway for me. So shifted gears. Um, actually it was kind of an Atkins book that gave me the, the framework the very first time for, because there weren't paleo diet books available at that time. Um, so I shifted to kind of a modified Atkins, high protein, low, low carb, higher fat diet. And it was just magic for me. Like it, it everything clicked, uh, probably 90, 95% of my gut issues resolved immediately. I also discovered I had celiac at the same time. So you know, there was both the blood sugar issue and also this um, immunogenic food piece, you know, reactivity to gluten and and uh, some other things. Ironically, I, I react pretty negatively to eggs, too, which sucks, you know, oh, really yeah. limits uh, breakfast options for sure, which is part of the reason also why I had hamburgers for, Got it. for yeah. breakfast and not an omelet, you know. Um, so that uh, uh, that was kind of the genesis of this stuff. It was right around that time, about a year, year and a half later that I found this kind of weird workout online called CrossFit. And I started doing that with my, my friend, Dave Warner, he's a retired Navy SEAL. And we started working out in his garage and within, I don't know, three, four months, we had about 15 people that we were training in there. And so I reached out to the Glassman's and said, Hey, uh, we love the program. Uh, we're training people when we want to open a gym and we'd like to call it CrossFit. And they were like, go be achieved, do it, you know? And so that was the first CrossFit affiliate gym, uh, CrossFit North up in Seattle. And the funny story with that, I, I, I later moved back down to Chico, California and opened what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate CrossFit NorCal. Um, we were open maybe five years before we had an affiliate agreement or anything. Like it was, <laughs> it was fascinating how, um, wild west that the early years of CrossFit were. <laughs> I'm but, sure that's um, a different story now. Yeah. It's a very different story. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the cool thing about doing work with CrossFit, I just, uh, I, I started helping at the certifications and became kind of their, their subject matter expert in nutrition. Also, I just got to work with tens of thousands of people, you know, just so much throughput and learning what did work, what didn't work. It, it was pretty quick that I discovered that low carb diets are great for, um, metabolically challenged people, folks that have type two diabetes or they're heading that direction, um, systemic inflammatory issues, autoimmune issues. But I also really quickly learned that super high motor athletes, um, sometimes they benefit from some moderation in their carbohydrate intake, but sticking them on a 40 gram per day ketogenic diet protocol was oftentimes a recipe for just blowing them up and destroying them, you know? So I, learned that there was definitely not a one size fits all approach to this stuff. And that helped to inform the, the, you know, 
definitely the first two books. The third book is more sustainability oriented, but had two New York Times bestselling books and have been able to work with like Naval Special Warfare within their resiliency program. I've spoke at NASA, uh, a number of different uh, military outfits, Canadian Light Infantry, uh, United States Marine Corps. So have been able to um, worth, work with really elite performers, but really the bulk of my work and really where my heart lies is working with people that have kind of run the gamut of standard medical offerings and mm-hmm. they have complex health issues and it just didn't address what was their, what the problem was. And I really like working with those folks because working with an elite athlete is cool. Like they're a hard charger. They're really motivated and everything, but, but sometimes it it's kind of like, they're going to be elite no matter what I do. Like, unless I do something stupid and ruin them as an athlete, but it's like, I'm maybe I get a little bit more of a percentage point out of them and they win another world championship or something. And that is really cool. But Another thing that I learned early on is people like myself, people like my mom who had these complex health histories, standard of care medicine just doesn't address it. Like, you know, it can keep you from dying in the moment, but these chronic degenerative diseases, uh, standard of care medicine is completely unprepared to help people with that. It's getting better slowly, but I mean, it's, it's a disaster. And so if I can work with someone like that, and I can get buy-in and we can modify their diet and lifestyle. It can literally save their life, which can then have knock-on consequences to their family and their work and their community. So my heart really is in trying to help just the average schmuck that is ground down by like the modern industrial food system and the way our, our, our lives are and try to provide them a, a route out of that and towards something that hopefully is a lot healthier. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, I'm curious about your mom. I remember you mentioning this, I think, on your own podcast at some point, but I for- did she have diabetes? Is that what it was? She had diabetes, um, about eight different interrelated autoimmune conditions. Mm. Uh, she was a 30-year smoker and then eventually did quit, but she, she had a ton of health issues, but they were very similar to the things that I had for mm. sure. Yeah. Well, I, this is actually, uh, you know, your comment about CrossFit and working with these different athletes is a pretty good segue. And uh, one of the reasons, I haven't told you this yet, that one of the reasons I really appreciate your work in particular is, you know, you, you made this comment about learning that there is no one size fits all. And I'm always very, you know, my spidey senses go off whenever anybody is is absolutely sure that their way is the way. And you're so good at exploring the nuance of any dietary approach or any complex issue like this. And um, you're, you're readily willing to give caveats and to change your mind. And I've seen you do that over these years following your podcast and reading your books. And I so appreciate that. It's it's so oh, thank you builds trust for me. And it just makes me, I don't know, it's helped me appreciate just how much complexity there is to all this stuff, because I've been on the other side of it. And I, I kind of joke, I've had like maybe three or four born again Christian moments in the last few years where, you know, I discovered like the paleo diet and our first, it was low carb and keto. And I, I was like, oh my God, turns out carbs are evil. Everybody needs to know this. And, you know, I was trying to preach from a, from the rooftops and then I'll come to find out it's a little more complicated than that. And right. even for myself, I've, I've come back towards a higher carb approach be- because I am a hard charging athlete and like, oh my God, surprisingly, I feel I feel really good and it's working for me. Um, right. But yeah, I, I want to dig into that. Like what, 
what were some of these athletes in the CrossFit context, what kind of, what were they coming to you for? Were they coming to you because they had some um, health issues or did they just want a performance boost? What kind of questions did people have for you? So it's a really good question. There was kind of a, a spectrum of, of folks. Um, some people arrived and this was really early on where they, they, uh, they wanted to try to get a little more juice out of what they were doing. And, you know, I just want to, you know, get my lifts up, get my Metcons up, you know, the, the whole performance optimization deal. Um, and, and again, this is where I learned really quickly, like low carb for an low carb plus CrossFit in an overweight, metabolically broken person is magic. It is absolutely amazing. But once that person gets leaned out and their work capacity is really, you know, remarkable, they may not eat you know, the standard, the recommended like six or 800 grams of carbs a day, but maybe they find that they do really well at like two, 250 grams of carbs a day, which is a fraction of what you would think an athlete like that would normally run on. So they're still fat adapted. They're still actually ironically like ketotic a lot, maybe all the time, but their work output wow. is so high that even at 200 grams of carbs a day, they're still in ketosis. But if we ratchet them all the way down to 40 grams of carbs, they just blow up. And this was another cross-section of people that would show up and they were already lean, hard charger, but they weren't as lean as they wanted to be. And I mean, this is, this is one of those funny things where, um, every once in a while you see somebody in CrossFit where they're kind of figure competitor lean and it's like, and they have amazing performance. But usually people are just kind of lean. They're pretty jacked, but it, it's not like single digit body fat levels. Like okay. the men are like eight, maybe eight to 10%. And, you know, they're lean and muscular and everything, but they, they're, they're not like super shredded typically into the women a little bit greater than that. But folks would come to me and they're like, so I was really trying to lean out more and I dropped my carbs and I dropped my calories and I upped my work output. And then they were broken. Like mm. they... They had what in the common parlance would be uh, adrenal fatigue, which medicine kind of holds its nose as that. There's not adrenal fatigue. Uh, okay, there's not. Um, there is HPTA axis dysregulation. And then your doctor's like, yes, there is. And it's exactly the same shit. But, you know, <laughs> Semantic. one is a mouthful and doesn't make any sense. And the other one is an uh, inaccurate term, but it actually kind of informs what, what the problem is where people see uh, their their androgens crater, both testosterone and estrogen. They see cortisol sometimes really elevated or, or in the later stages really suppressed, which is almost worse. Um, uh, systemic inflammatory issues, gut issues, uh, uh, Im immunological issues. So as CrossFit kind of progressed, I started getting a lot of those folks, the, the people that would show up and they they would see a client who lost enormous amounts of weight on a low carb diet. And when you see somebody go from 300 pounds to 180 pounds, you're like, that must work. Mm. I only need to lose five pounds. Clearly that'll work for me. And it's like, maybe not, you know, we have, <laughs> to, you know, we have a totally different story. We now have a 190 pound male who's, 9% body fat, but he wants to be 7% body fat. Um, the strategy on that may be really, really different than a guy that's five foot nine, 300 pounds and would be lean and jacked at 190 pounds, you know? So, sure, yeah. um, 
folks would see these really profound transformations of like a low carb or ketogenic diet and some, some interval training. But again, that, that, um, novice phase of training, like everything you do works, it, it's relatively easy, you know, um, that lower carb approach is good because we're, we're undoing damage from metabolic derangement. And as the person leans out, usually we increase the carbohydrate load, but, uh, as my career went forward, I started dealing more and more and more with people who had broken themselves from both a high motor output and an inappropriate amount of calories under some circumstances, carbs, um, too much intermittent fasting, you know, like mm. they would see all these stories about how awesome intermittent fasting was. And so, you know, if 16 hours is good, 22 hours must be way better, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, Folks that are willing to do CrossFit and suffer like that, they're pretty type A. And so you would find that they were doing CrossFit six days a week. Their day off was like hot yoga, <laughs> a sauna, and, and you know, uh, a ruck march with an 80-pound pack. Uh, they're sure. intermittent fasting 20 hours a day, and they ate five grams of carbs last month. And they know that because they documented every, <laughs> like, twig of, of broccoli that they ate. And... This was just like meeting, it was like Groundhog's Day. Like I was meeting the same person again and again and again. And then I started really shifting some focus towards like, hey, if you want this elite performance, some degree of carbohydrate capping may be appropriate. You may find some optimization there because we don't get in the blood sugar, you know, highs and lows and some of the deleterious health effects. But if you're in a highly glycolytic sport, you need to get glucose and glycogen from somewhere, you know, and, and just doing it from, uh, uh, gluconeogenesis out of your liver is going to be really hard sledding. Like you, you, you can do that, but it, it's, uh, I know a few people who are remarkably high level athletes in jujitsu and CrossFit and they're type one diabetics and they manage their type one with a high protein, low carb, moderate fat approach. Hmm. And they, they perform, but they, they know they will say they're like, if I could eat some carbs, I could do even better. Mm. You know, like they, they know that they would, they would up their performance a little bit. That is fascinating. I, that's, I mean, I've, I've shared my own story on the podcast. Um, so people will be familiar with it, this, but that sounds really familiar. That's really resonating with my own story. And it was voluntary. I don't, I don't have type one, but I was trying to regulate kind of in that same way. And, um, I think cooked myself and, have been kind of hanging out in this low carb sphere for a couple of years now, just trying a lot of different approaches and making sure my electrolytes are right and all these things. And ultimately kind of coming full circle and realizing like, okay, I've been in this bubble and two to 300 grams of carbs in a day for an athlete like myself in a glycolytic sport, you know, is that's not even necessarily high carb. I was kind of afraid of that amount of carbs, but I'm right. coming to realize like, oh, that's just reasonable, <laughs> reasonable. And right. it's, it's right. actually been a, a, a positive uh, for me. So thank you for sharing all that. I think that's, that's really good to hear all that. And I want to dig into um, some more of the, some more recommendations that you might have uh, for climbers that are completely new to the paleo diet and to this kind of, you know, conversation around carbohydrates. And we just covered the hard charging part of it. And I think what's interesting is that my listenership, there's likely, there's likely many people in both of these 
or in, in two different camps, you know, there are a lot of hard chargers listening to this and I've never done CrossFit. I've never done BJJ, but climbing, I think actually does have a lot of parallels to those other sports. It's very glycolytic. Mm -hmm. It's very, um, short, intense, high intensity bouts of, of, um, output. And it's very full body, especially if you're bouldering or sport climbing or things like this. Right. And it's also a strength to weight ratio sport. So climbers are obsessed with being as lean as possible. And many of us, myself included, have made the mistake of, you know, thinking that there's some magic way to be at 6% body fat year round, which, you know, just might not be possible for most of us. So, right. Right. Yeah. So on the one hand, that's really helpful, I think, for the hard chargers. But then what's interesting is that climbing is also this kind of you know, it, it was, it's still rooted in this kind of like countercultural renegade sort of subset of the culture. And it's not, you know, there's climbers that listen to this, that think of themselves as athletes and take it really seriously and are really dialed into the health. And then there's climbers that just want to be outside and hang out and just climb. And, and they don't want to think of themselves as athletes. And, you know, I think it was in your book, Wired to Eat, you talk about these different pillars that are really important. Mm-hmm. And I think climbers as a group, generally speaking, are doing a lot of things right. Um, you know, they're outdoors a lot. They're getting exercise. Uh, the climbing community is really rich and, and a really positive community for the most part. And so I think people kind of have that part of it dialed. And those, you know, those climbers out there that are trying to perform usually do pretty well with sleep and, and what else. So I think climbers have maybe a little more latitude than the general population as far as diet, but you still get some people that, you know, are the, t- the type of people that they look lean and they're active enough that they're kind of getting away with a crappy diet, but then they're right. still just living off of the cheapest, most calorically dense, you know, crappy food, junk food that they can buy at grocery outlet or, or whatever it is right. to be able to sustain this lifestyle. So what I'm really curious about as far as those people goes, um, I guess I have two questions. And the first is like, what are some of the symptoms that you've observed with, with people that have come to you that might look great on the outside? They might have a great physique and be at a leanness that they are really happy with. But, you know, there's some stuff going on under the hood, whether it's autoimmunity things, um, skin issues, things like that, that are creeping in. What are some of the more common things that you've seen that end up being associated with diet that people aren't necessarily thinking about? Yeah, you know, you hit on a, a number of them, uh, gut-related issues, wacky skin issues, psoriasis, eczema, um, just kind of weird, you know, skin flakiness. Like, it, it, it's interesting. A, a ton of these things that people just kind of assume are normal, and maybe they've had it since they were a kid, but they've never done an elimination diet where they pulled dairy out or they pulled gluten out and then reintroduce, you know, put this condition into remission and then reintroduce it. And then it, it, it comes back. Those are, are some biggies, um, that inability to go. I, I don't recommend that people do overly large amounts of fasting. Like I think there are people that, that like go, too extreme on that. It's another stress. Um, it, it's a tool that can be used at, at appropriate points, but it's a great diagnostic instrument. Like <laughs> you, you should, one should be able to go a day without eating and, and have high output and maybe you get tired. Maybe you have some lethargy and whatnot, but it shouldn't totally crater you. Mm. And so like if, if the person is in a state where they have to eat every two hours or they start getting kind of hangry and shaky and, you know, what uh, uh, foggy headed and all that, 
that's a sign that, that they can't metabolically shift from carbohydrate to fat, you know, and we, we would ideally like to be this engine that can kind of shift into whatever, whatever we're, we're throwing in. And so that, uh, diagnostically being able to go a good six, eight, 10 hours without eating and still be functional. That's a good sign that we're on point and an inability to do that is maybe telling us that the type of food, the amount or types of food that we're eating is inappropriate in that, that scenario. Got it. <clears throat> Thank you for that. And then I'm, I'm curious, what are, if you had to narrow it down, I know this is kind of putting you on the spot and you wrote this whole book wired to eat, which is about this and goes in more detail, but can you pick like two or three biggest bang for your buck uh, dietary changes or or they could even be lifestyle changes. But if someone out there, you know, they're a climber, they're an athlete, they look fit, they've never thought about their diet whatsoever. You know, maybe they follow kind of like a, a healthy-ish Western American diet where they, right. you know, they eat the whole wheat bread with the sandwiches with veggies on it rather than just like a cheap PB&J or something. Right. Um, wh what are some of the biggest areas that you like to focus on with people? Yeah. You, you know, particularly for body composition and, and, uh, it, it's funny whether we're, uh, you, you paid me a nice compliment at the beginning where it's like, Oh, you don't have any absolutes. And then I'm going to throw out kind of an absolute, <laughs> uh, it, which is, um, uh, I really do think that making, uh, the nutrition very protein centric, like make that your first whistle stop when, when you're thinking about what you are, are doing. And I think like a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass, all the way up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight. Mm. And so like I'm 165 pounds, maybe 10% body fat. So that might be anywhere from 140 grams of protein per day up to 170 grams of protein per day. Like that's, that's kind of a good operating parameter. Um, two or three meals a day to, to get that in. Um, maybe a little bit of time restricted eating where I'm not eating every two hours. Like I try to have some gaps in between to let my, my digestion, um, rest in between meals. I think that's an amazing starting place. And what it does, it, it provides adequate nutrition, just about implicitly like dense protein sources tend to be the most nutritious foods that we can eat. So we get all the vitamins, minerals, all, all that type of stuff that we really, really, really need for optimum health. And then the cool thing that it does is it sends this satiety signal such that we tend to not overeat. We mm. tend to kind of spontaneously match intake with output. And what we have found, like we saw this within the, the really protein phobic keto community, People were eating like 40 grams of protein a day because they were afraid of mTOR and, and uh, uh, cancer potential and all this stuff. They were eating tidy amounts of protein, but they were massively overeating fat. And these people started getting fat from eating a ketogenic diet, which in theory is supposed to be like hard or bordering on impossible. But there's a, a concept in evolutionary biology called the protein leverage hypothesis that puts this idea forward that protein foods are disproportionately nutritious. All organisms eat to a protein minimum. And once your body senses that it's had adequate protein, it, it, it's kind of like, okay, we're good. If we got in the protein, we got in everything else that we need. And by and large, that's very true. So from that body composition perspective, like it's just easy to eat fewer calories when we eat adequate protein. And this is regardless of whether you eat 
high protein, high carb or high protein, moderate or, or high fat. Like it, it's just easier to do that. So I think on the nutrition side, really, it, and again, people be like, I don't know, this is bullshit. You know, it's like, give it a shot for two months. Like just really make a goal of getting 40 to 50 grams of protein at, at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and just kind of see what your body composition does, see how your energy plays out and whatnot. And, uh, from there, I think, you know, the thing that provides the greatest return on investment, and this is arguably maybe even more important than nutrition, but there, they, there's strong interplay is sleep, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, going to bed earlier, um, having good sleep hygiene, not looking at devices before you go to bed, um, dark room that you're sleeping in dark, cool, uh, again, earlier, earlier bedtime. Um, it's pretty clear that although we could go to bed, if one can pull it off, going to bed at midnight and waking up at eight and, and let's say no alarm, like that's, that's when you fall asleep. That's when you get up you're not as rested as going uh, falling asleep at 10 a.m. and waking up at 10 p.m. and waking up at 6 a.m. Like oh, there's pretty good research that suggests it's just more restful. It, you're, the recovery is better. And my good friend, Dr. Kirk Parsley, is a retired Navy SEAL. He's also a physician and he's a sleep expert. And he makes this really cool analogy, which is when you go to bed, you've accumulated this damage and this trauma, you know, oxidative damage from exercise and from processing food, micro trauma from doing, you know, different movements and activities. And when you go to sleep, this is your opportunity to try to bring you back to where you were before all that stuff. And when we're kids and probably up into our twenties, what happens is that we exercise and we experience, uh, you know, micro damage And then when our body, when we sleep, we repair, but we repair better than what we were before. Mm. And this is why we get stronger and faster and, you you know, better at the things we do. Then about your mid twenties, that restoration doesn't quite happen. You're only, you're a little bit less good than what you were yesterday. And then as, as time goes along, as you get older, that recovery becomes less and less. Each time you go to bed, you recover comparatively less relative to what you were yesterday. And this is, you know, a large part of what the aging process is. And when you look at the effects of sleep deprivation, like what occurs with regards to disordering blood glucose levels, disturbing um, gut integrity, damaging immune function, it's indistinguishable from aging, like aging and sleep deprivation are identical. And if you want to feel what being very old and broken down will feel like just sleep deprive yourself for a couple of days. And mm. you, you're getting a window into a, a future of, of, you know, poor maintenance and all that type of stuff. So, um, if I could go back, it would be really interesting if I could go back in time, have a parallel universe and rerun my career without starting everything from the perspective of like low carb and paleo diet and all that stuff, but start it from the perspective of we're going to optimize your sleep because your sleep optimizes everything else you do. And then nested in that, you know, it's like, well, man, I wake up a lot in the middle of the night. We put an HRV rig on the person, the heart rate variability. It sees what their allostatic stress load is. It's like, man, your sleep sucks. You're not recovering. I think you're getting some really gnarly blood sugar excursions. Let's dial your blood glucose levels down by moderating carbohydrate intake. Okay. We got some improvements there, but we're still having some kind of weird stuff going on. 
well, maybe we have some immunogenic foods. Let's do an elimination diet and pull out gluten and dairy. Like if, if I could redo everything and not start from the nutrition perspective first, which is always a fight. Like it's always like a religious jihad battle <laughs> to get anything going there. And instead started from sleep. It'd be really interesting where the two career paths went. If I was more the sleep guy, which I'd always talked about sleep, but it was a piece, not the center, mm. um, versus if I had, had, you know, coined myself a sleep expert and really gone deep on that. And everything that we did, uh, nutrition, lifestyle, everything was focused back at optimizing sleep, but all of the paleo diet stuff would have still been in there. All of the appropriate carb stuff would have still been in there because it all ultimately feeds back into your sleep quality. And if we improve sleep quality, everything else gets better. Oh boy. That is, that is great. Okay. Protein and sleep. <clears throat> protein and sleep. Protein yeah. and sleep. That's Which, so, I, I mean, it, Go ahead. It, it really quickly, just for like context on that, um, if somebody doesn't want to go like full paleo or something, you know, and they don't suspect any type of gluten intolerance, you, you roll into, you know, you're doing a bunch of climbing, you find a roadside burger joint, you get a, a burger, um, you ask for two patties, you only eat half of the bun. If there's French fries there, you do a few of the French fries and that's it. And, and for the love of God, don't do sugar sweetened beverages of any kind. Like <laughs> hopefully people fucking get that at this point. Like I, it is just the worst thing you could do for yourself. Like it, it is terrible nutritionally, but that is a really easy intervention. That's going to dramatically increase your protein intake. We're kind of, we're not going low carb, but we're moderating the carbohydrate load. And, uh, you know, and just magical things will happen with that. And then on the sleep front, it should be as easy to sell sleep as it is to sell sex. It's like, <laughs> how good do you feel when you're well-rested and how shitty do you feel when you're poorly rested? Like people know that, but they're still like, well, there's this FOMO thing. Oh, there's a party or these people to hang out with. And I'm not saying don't have a social life, but um, we've kind of constructed a little bit of a breakfast club within our social circles. It's like, I've got a group of people that will go out for coffee and breakfast and we hang out and we spend a couple hours hanging out on, on weekends or even sometimes in the weekdays versus staying up drinking cocktails and fucking up my sleep and, and, you know, feeling like garbage the next day. So it, it the, the protein and sleep thing, really easy to experiment with the, the results are very empirical, very, to me, very obvious, you know, and, and, uh, there's a million different things you can do to then start getting out into the weeds of nutrition and lifestyle modification. But if you tackle those, I literally think that you achieve 95% of everything you would ever get out of nutrition and lifestyle modification. And there wow. are all these people that are like, Oh, I spent $300,000 to hack my, my biome or whatever. And it's like, okay, um, you could have spent, $4 on a pair of blue blockers to put on when you read your book at night and just buy more protein when you get a sandwich or a, a hamburger, you know, I mean, it, it it's, it, and, and again, I think that you're getting 90 or 95% of anything you would get out of all of the rest of nutrition. Mm. Well, people are going to be suspicious at this point. I've, I've had a handful of different nutritional experts or people that focus on nutrition in the context of helping clients perform better as climbers. Um, and that one gram per pound of body weight number has been crazy consistent across all these different mm -hmm. recommendations, you know, from people listening from uh, Katie Lambert, who has a master's in nutrition, uh, Haley Franklin Foltz, who has a NASM cert, and then Dave McLeod, who's on a keto carnivore diet, like he recommends a similar amount of, of protein as well. So 
That's interesting. And it brings us into the meat conversation. You know, there's a lot of climbers who I think are getting on board with the protein thing, but they're using a lot of protein powders to kind of hack mm-hmm. the calorie thing, right? So they want to be able to use a whey protein to get, or a vegan-based, uh, you know, plant-based protein powder to get those numbers up and then give themselves a little more latitude with the rest of their diet, maybe to fit more carbs in without going over calories, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that versus meat? Um, what are your thoughts on getting protein through supplements versus chewing your food? How do you think about that? I, I've just always seen whole food work better for folks, you okay. know, and, and, uh, 23 years of doing this. Um, we've had people compete at high levels in the UFC. Um, I've helped some, uh, one gal who was a gold medalist, Olympic rower and, and very high level in, in rowing. Um, again, I'm not like the guy that has like the laundry list of here, are all the professional athletes I, I work with, but I I've worked with some folks in the highest levels you could want to work with. Like, I just find that they generally do better with the bulk of their food coming from whole foods. Um, occasionally somebody is high enough work output that like doing a post-workout shake is appropriate. And then we follow up with a, a solid meal 45 minutes later or something like that. But it's still, um, for the athletes, there's a little bit more call for it, but even then not, not that much, you know, like if you still haven't buttoned up getting significant protein, you know, whole food protein from your two or three meals a day. If you still haven't optimized your sleep, like there's still so much, um, return on investment to be had versus going with, with kind of like a a protein supplement. And what, what was really interesting is that on our, our body composition clients, the clients that came to us and they're like, Hey, I'm overweight and I have health issues and I want to lose weight. The shakes just didn't stick with people. Like it, it was actually, um, counterproductive from the caloric standpoint because they got hungry faster after the shake than they did from, you know, whole, oh, whole real food. And this is where like, um, you know, you track down like some 90 or 95% lean ground beef, you do some turkey breast or, or chicken breast or something like if somebody's really wanting to take a, a close look at their caloric intake, there are some shockingly lean protein sources that are whole food derived. And I, I, I think that, you know, is, is still a good option, but then, you know, above and beyond that, like a, a post-workout or even peri-workout, like my friends in the keto gains community, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, they're big fans. Um, they're almost bigger fans of pre or peri-workout nutrition than post. So like mm. Luis will right before he goes to lift, um, do this uh, keto gains coffee, um, MCT powder, a little bit of glucose, uh, 25, 30 grams of, of whey protein. And, you know, it's in coffee and you blend it up and everything. And he, he makes a really compelling case that, it, but he's very um, muscle mass oriented. So okay. maybe you want to want to tweak things a little bit differently, but he's both very muscular and very, very lean. But that pair, you know, Somewhere immediately before, during, or after, there seems to be benefit, you know, for having some nutrition, uh, you know, in that that window for sure. And and I think like a good quality whey protein is seems like a, a great option. Okay, so don't don't make it the backbone of your uh, protein source, but maybe a supplement here and there. Absolutely, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, that carries us into sacred cow and the conversation around meat. I mean, climbers, as much as many of us are kind of type A and performance oriented. They're climbers, very generally speaking, are um, 
you know, very environmentally conscious, very uh, ethically sure. conscious as well. And that's an important conversation for people. And I've talked about this a number of times on the podcast. I've mentioned your book actually, and recommended your book. And I love Sacred Cow. Um, and it wasn't until just a month or two ago that I finally watched the film. I think I read your book mm -hmm. a year ago and I saw that the film was coming out and I was like, ah, oh, it's probably all the same stuff. And I finally watched it knowing that we were going to be doing this and was just blown away. I just, it, it really captured, like being able to see what Joel Salatin is doing on his farm and being able mm -hmm. to see that ecosystem that's being stimulated by ruminant animals and how he's moving them around and how just streamlined the whole thing is, I found it really compelling. And, um, you know, I want to point people towards your book and your film if they're curious about this stuff. But I think the thing I appreciated about the film the most is that, you know, it's it's so, we live in such a polarized time and it's, it's almost as if, you know, there's this war going on between people that eat meat and, and this vegan community. But what's fascinating watching your film is, you know, it's really clear, at least to me, that you guys want to solve all the same problems. You have all the same concerns right. about our environment, about the ethics of the situation, and you're you're very critical of factory farming, and yet you're proposing eating more meat as a as a potential solution for a lot of people and and for our society. So I'd love to just simply ask, why better meat? That's the the subtitle of the book is a case for better meat. And I'd love to hear you speak to, uh, you know, where the idea for the book came from and why the focus on better meat in particular. Yeah, man, that is a really good question. And it's, uh, I'm not going to do as good an answer answering it as, as your question. Your question <laughs> is really good. But, uh, and just for a little bit of context, um, in the book, and, and we do this in the film also, but the book was cool in that unlike being on social media or, or something where you drop something in and maybe you try to make a point, but you know, you have a, a, you know, a written character limit. And so you're, you know, you're kind of constrained with that. The book, it's like, I, I can set up this case and then I can start supporting it. And, you know, here's what the other folks say, and here's what we say, and we can cite references and, you know, go forward and make a really hopefully compelling case. And in the book, we cover the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. And in doing that, we take big insights from ecology, evolutionary biology, thermodynamics, economics. Um, there's a massive amount of material that we unpack in this thing. And when we turned in the original manuscript, it was 600 pages long, which is completely untenable for a popular consumption book. But the, the I, I will take my hat off to the editors. They got it down to just a little under 300 pages, and it, it it's really good. Like it, it it lays out the case pretty compelling. And you know, the reason why we called the book and film Sacred Cow, we were debating between that and Scapegoat. Mm. But the reason why we we really focus on Sacred Cow is ruminant animals in general and cows in particular have been this demonized life form. You know, uh, there are claims that float around out there that 78% of greenhouse gas emissions come from cattle in agriculture, but, but cattle in particular, which is completely false, not, not, None of the science supports that. It, it, it's not even remotely in the ballpark. Um, and ironically, one of the things that is commonly suggested is that people should eat less beef and more chicken. 
and pork, but, but chicken in particular, chicken seems to be this more benign item, but chicken spends its whole life in confined feeding and it's fed exclusively grains and soy products. And, and there's all kinds of concerns around that, but even conventionally raised beef spends 70% of its life on pasture. And a lot of the beef that ends up even in the conventional feedlot system People are using regenerative practices, practices that improve the quality of the grasslands, that enhance water retention, that enhance uh, carbon sequestration and whatnot. So it's interesting, it, although we make the case for a largely pasture-based system, we also make the case that currently, you know, the, the current model, in our view, the main challenge there is actually the... Uh, kind of the ethical treatment of the animals that they could be treated better, that there's ways that we could, could modify their, their living environments at, at various stages that would be better and would look much closer to like what Joel Salatin does. And so it, it's interesting in our, our, the case that we've made folks, uh, I, I would call them kind of the meat elitists have kind of come after us because although we would like to see changes in the way that the, the modern conventional system operate, there's also kind of a reality that it's actually on the beef side is far closer to a sustainable model than like the pork and chicken side. The pork and chicken side is, is kind of a disaster from mm. e in an ecological perspective, from the way the animals are, are treated and whatnot. And so even in that scenario of making a case for quote, better meat, there's a lot of nuance to it. Like there's a lot of stuff to unpack on it. And this is, I, I, I want to say this in a way that that's respectful, but also calls the proper um, scrutiny to this topic. Um, the vegans have a pretty easy ride on this because within the kind of vegan model, the person will say, if you eat a vegan diet, you will be skinny. You will live forever. You are going to be morally superior. You're saving the planet and you're just, you know, overall a, a great person. And that's a beautiful, you know, like elevator pitch sound bites, you know, and, it, and it's all, you know, buttoned up and, and perfect. And it, it sounds, it sounds amazing. And for me, it, it, you know, like you asked this great question and, and to be able to give it any type of an answer is kind of a mini PhD dissertation. And, and oftentimes <laughs> people will say, well, if, you don't really understand a topic unless you can explain it in simple terms. And there, there is a lot of, lot of truth to that. And, uh, you know, that's where we have to kind of look at, well, what are the claims around meat consumption? You know, for let's say, let's just ignore the health claims for a minute, because honestly, I think that that's the easiest one to kind of debunk and, and that's been done a lot, but what about the environmental concerns around, you know, meat consumption, specifically cattle? And again, there are these, uh, these claims that cattle produce all this greenhouse gas and, you know, it's, a, it's this major contributor to climate change. And we explain this in, in the book and probably do an even better job of it in the movie. But something that folks need to really understand is that if you just demonize greenhouse gases, say like methane and carbon dioxide, uniformly, this can kind of be misleading because what do cattle eat. They eat grass, ideally. And what is that grass made of? It's made primarily of carbon. 
carbon obtained by pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide and then making cellulose, which the animal then eats. And if some of that cellulosic fermentation produces uh, short chain fatty acids that fuel the animal, then that animal breathes out carbon dioxide. Some of that cellulose that is part of the grass gets broken down by microorganisms and part of that process produces methane. But this is all part of a cycle. The carbon dioxide goes back into the atmosphere and then will eventually become part of a plant. The methane goes into the atmosphere and gets cut eventually via photolysis, this interaction between uh, UV radiation and, and just being out in the environment. And it gets converted into carbon dioxide and water, which then again becomes part of a carbon cycle. So biogenic sources of greenhouse gases cannot be lumped into the same package as the stuff that comes out of the tailpipe of a car. The tailpipe mm. of a car is mining carbon sources that have been underground for hundreds of millions of years. There was this period of time on the earth, the Carboniferous period, where plants developed lignans and, and cellulosic structures that no organisms on the planet could break down. There weren't organisms that, that could break these things down. So we had millions of years of plant material that would live and die and fall to the ground and get buried and you know, subducted under the earth. And this is where all this carbon came from. And, and it's millions of years worth of carbon sequestration that plants pulled carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it under underground. Now we're releasing that at a pretty, pretty rapid clip. And, you know, we need to understand that if we vilify and go after biogenic sources of greenhouse gases and ignore what the impacts are of industry and transportation, we're really misallocating resources. Like we have limited resources as a society and a planet. And, and so we need to be really specific about that. So we, and it's interesting when I explain, I've given some of these talks to both adults and, and kids. And when I explain the carbon cycle to kids, they get it immediately. They're like, oh yeah, carbon dioxide in the air, it, you know, becomes part of the plant. The animal eats it, it releases it, that recycles. That's kind of a net neutral story. Like it, 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 it's not, not super duper contributing. And interestingly, if animals are put into holistically managed processes where we build topsoil as part of, of the animals being raised. This is the, the, the North American grasslands that used to be like 90 feet deep of topsoil <laughs> because of millions of years of grazing animals, grazing the grass, pooping, peeing, and, and developing the topsoil. So you can sequester just monumental amounts of carbon there. So it's at, at a minimum carbon neutral, but arguably it's actually a way that we can pull carbon. We could pull atmospheric carbon out of the atmosphere that is put there from industry and transportation by using properly raised grazing animals. So vilifying that process may be an, it, literally shooting ourselves in the foot. Mm. I don't know how long I was talking there, but it's a long <laughs> ass time. And you, you, you know, and, and still some people may be like, well, I don't know about this. Like the, you know, the World Economic Forum says this and the World Health Organization says that. And so, uh, you know, that's a piece of this. I, I will throw out one other thing. So like um, beef production is vilified because it's a, they, they call it a, a water hog, that it uses lots and lots of water. And th this is just maybe one of the most crystal clear examples of how the information around this topic is really, really um 
misrepresented, taken out of context. So folks will say things like your quarter pound beef patty required something like 38 bathtubs of water to produce that. And it's true on the one hand. But the deeper story there is that when we look at water use, water gets broken into one of three different categories. We have green water, which is the water that just falls on the earth as either uh, rain, snow, or kind of a mist-like precipitation. We have blue water, which includes lakes, rivers, and to some degree underground aquifers. And then we have gray water, which is the leftover products of, of like sewage treatment and like animal effluent and stuff like that. When folks are saying, citing how much water goes into um, producing your, your quarter pound hamburger patty, what they're citing is the water that falls naturally on grasslands. Like this is the water that was going to fall no matter what. And we <laughs> want it to fall on the grasslands. We want the grasslands to grow and thrive because all these other organisms grow there and thrive. It, you know, it's part of the, the natural ecosystem and ecology. It is not as if we are stealing water from a process and doing something else. And a beautiful example of that is growing almonds. Like in, in California, there are uh, almond growers that own the rights to the, the water in the areas that they're in. And the cities don't have water for drinking. They have to truck water in because the water is being used to raise the almonds. And 80% of those almonds are sold overseas, mainly to China. So oh, we're wow. mining our groundwater at a rate that is not allowing the aquifers to refill, turning it into food, and then you know shipping it away. But everybody looks at almond milk as if it was some sort of an ecological boon when it's actually from a water footprint perspective, it's horrifying. Like it, 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 in it, the irony is it absolutely has an expiration date. Those people will pump those aquifers dry and then those trees will no longer be functional to produce almonds or they, they need to figure out some other type of a workaround. But it's really dishonest to lump the water that goes into beef production the same way that you do say like almond production. And even your, Costco or Walmart conventional beef, 96, 95% of the water is from that green water story. It's from the water that just falls on the, the, the land, you know, producing grass and, and what have you. And then if we're in an, a, a fully pasture centric model, it's 97, 98% of the water is from this green water, you know, water cycle kind of scenario. But it, again, those are you know, I did a, a terrible job of trying to address the greenhouse gas emission story and also the water utilization story. But I would hope that nobody would believe anything that I've said on this podcast. Like it's very, a very shallow treatment, but I would just implore people, if you care about climate change, put on your high school debate hat and tackle this thing from the perspective that you're going to argue the other side, like assume that the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, which is kind of funny. I don't know when counterculture started adopting all of the biggest, most established entities as like <laughs> who their fucking gatekeepers are. But that, that like true. the last couple of years, that's exactly what has happened. But operate with an assumption that those folks have nefarious processes underway and that maybe there's a deeper story to this and that maybe 
properly implemented animal husbandry could be a, a huge benefit to humanity. And one, one final example of that, and we covered it pretty well in the film, is the using properly raised grazing animals to reverse desertification. And, and we showed that example down in the Chihuahuan Desert. Um, a rancher down there started using holistic grazing practices 20 plus years ago. And, and uh, the Chihuahuan Desert looks almost like a moonscape. Like there's very, very little greenery down there. There was massive erosion. And that all occurred when they started um, parceling out the, the desert with uh, barbed wire fencing when animals couldn't mm. wander the land and graze. It used to be a grassland. The area from Las Vegas to Reno to Utah used to be a grassland, but it got overgrazed because of the, the it, you can overgraze land and you can undergraze land. And, and both of those end up resulting in desertification. There's kind of a sweet spot there. And, you know, you, when, when we were driving out to do that, that film work on that uh, ranch in the Chihuahuan desert, you drive for five hours and there's nothing. It's just desert and like scrub brush. And then on the horizon, you see what looks almost like a tidal wave. Like it, it, you're like, there's something there. And as you drive up on it, it's like chest high grass that these, oh, wow. that, that the people in the Chihuahuan area, they didn't even know that grass could grow there. It's been so long since, you know, somebody had done this. And if everything else that I said was bullshit and, and was untrue, you would still make the case that using animals to reverse desertification is worth any other externality, any other cost, because desertification is one of the greatest challenges facing humanity. Huge swaths of land are being converted into desert and they increase the heat, you know, signature of the planet. Um, they, they are non-productive from food. They contribute to erosion, which damages waterways, both the oceans and the, you know, the uh, freshwater areas. And this holistically managed, uh, you know, application of holistically managed animals can reverse that whole process and it produces food for people and it creates economic independence for folks. Um, Forbes did a really fascinating piece, which the headline was something like um, vegans become odd bedfellows with big food and big pharma in their pursuit of a, a meatless planet was basically kind of the takeaway. But all of this discussion around you know, lab grown meat and like the beyond burger, which is just made out of processed soy and, and grains and whatnot that fits beautifully within the, you know, business plans of like Cargill and Merck and, and all these giant pharmaceutical and agricultural conglomerates, because they own all of that infrastructure. And in the, we, we made this point, I, I think both in the book and the film, but, um, Beyond Burger is six times more expensive than grass-fed fillet. Like the <laughs> mo most expensive piece of grass-fed fillet you could you could grab. The Beyond Burger is per pound for pound uh, like three to six times more expensive. So it's not saving money, not saving resources, it's not regenerating the planet, and it's a a really complex process to try to tell the story and explain it. This is where getting people out to a farm often to it, so that they can see what's going on and see like the before and after type stuff can be really um, so much more powerful than what I can do in a, a one hour podcast or even within a book or whatnot, like people can really experience it. But again, I would just encourage people definitely be concerned about climate change. Definitely look at, at this stuff. But um, 
I would just beg people to not assume that the the dominant narrative is benign or has anyone's best interests at heart or that it's true and that this alternate reality is really complex, really detailed, and it, it really flies in the face of this kind of global, super national corporation kind of model, which is what the world is growing into. Mm. Man, I wish I had you for another hour. I have so many questions that we could go off on from from there. I can come back on and bring down property values at another time. I'm <laughs> I'm always game for doing that. So, well, um, I mean, we we can cut this out. I want to check in with you. Do you want to do you want to wrap up right now, or are you good to go for? I got a couple more minutes. I can go a couple more minutes. Okay, yeah. okay, that's that's fantastic. So I do have just a couple questions that I'd really love to ask. One is about. Um, about the meat thing. And then I have two listener questions from people that support the show that I think would be really cool. fun to dig into. But, you know, I, again, I, I would really highly, rec I can't recommend highly enough for people to go watch the film. You know, you talked about taking people out to a farm and of course it's a documentary film and I don't really know that much about how they're made, but seeing Joel Salatin's farm and seeing some of these other examples and seeing how this rich, um, grassland soil captures water and how different that is from this dry caked desertification or desertified, desertified yep, soil. Yep. Um, seeing the difference there on film was so compelling. I just can't recommend it enough. I think the biggest question, maybe the most common question that I hear that I, I do wonder about, it seems like kind of the biggest question mark around what we actually do with this stuff is that, you know, a lot of people who are skeptical or that have kind of historically been on this, like, you know, reducing meat is good for the planet sort of uh, kick, you know, they'll say, okay, this is great. But the answer is still like, like, okay, we can eat some meat because obviously not all of it is terrible, but we should still eat less. We should still try to, you know, reduce our consumption and just eat enough to take care of our nutritional needs and whatnot. But, you know, we should really try to be shifting more of the the bulk of our calories from plants and, and just eat enough animals to help support this regenerative cycle. Um, do, do you have, I mean, that, the reason I want to ask that is because that is not an intuitive conclusion to me. You know, when I hear that using ruminant animals to improve the quality of the grasslands is actually sequestering more carbon than these animals are giving off, I find that so compelling that I jump to the conclusion that like we should be eating almost entirely meat, you know, that, that seems like maybe a more likely ending point, but can you shed light on that? Like how we should be thinking about reducing animal intake? And props to you. What, what it tells me is you have a, either you took a lot of physics at one time and understand thermodynamics, or you have a really good gut sense of that mm. because that eat less meat position is still assuming that there's something deleterious about the meat production process, which again, Maybe there is, but again, we've built this case and at least I, I would implore those folks to like give that whole story its fair shake. Um, hopefully I can pull this off. When I do a good job on this, it's pretty compelling and <laughs> I'm, I'm old and I have to keep like eight different things in my head at, at the same time to be able to do this. But um, let's flip this around on the, the other side of this. Something that is fairly non-controversial that is is agreed upon let's say both sides of the story, both the regenerative ag story and also kind of the vegan centric and, and even 
industrial row crop model, there's an understanding that the current food system as it stands has an expiration date on it. And it's mainly due to the damage and loss of our topsoil. Once the topsoil is gone, it's gone. And, and all of this stuff, we're going to grow food in a lab. And it, it is so poorly informed. The stuff that gets grown like in Iceland during the winter, it, it's lettuce and a few vegetables. You can't produce 2000 calories a day per human being in a lab at scale. Like it, it, it you, you're on a spaceship going to Mars and you got eight people to feed. We, we can talk some Turkey around that, you know, around, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, taking a, a fusion reactor and putting energy into that to, to, you know, produce a closed life cycle ecosystem there, different story, but this is not going to scale here. So it's interesting that people will say, well, we should still eat less meat. It's not going to, you know, you can't feed the, the world around this stuff, but we can't feed the world off of what we're doing now on the one hand, because we're, we're going to destroy our ability to produce food at all. That's a piece. Another piece is that currently calories are not a problem as far as production. The planet produces about 50% more calories than what we need, than what we consume. About 50% of the food produced globally ends up getting landfilled. And that's a whole interesting piece too. Like I've been talking about cattle and, uh, you know, cattle, we have, uh, Joel Salatin is able to produce five times more beef per acre than the neighbors around him using conventional methods. It's just that efficient. And that's not even also recognizing that he also produces pork and chicken and turkeys and lamb on the same land. So we're getting multiple dimensions, both in time and space of the food production there. Now, Joel also lives in a really good area. Virginia is a, it gets cold in the winter, but it's not buried under snow. It gets hot in the summer. So you have a very robust growing period, but it also is wet. So like he's able to produce a lot of food there. So I wouldn't say everywhere can produce 5X the, the food, but even in marginal areas, like I used to live in Reno, Nevada, and some of the, the regenerative practices around there, people are producing 50, at least 50 to 75% more on the land that they're using in this desert area. And they're kind of just getting going. We don't even know where that's going to finish over time, but we're somewhere between like 50% and 500% increase in our ability to produce just beef cattle, not even daisy chaining this together with pork and chicken and all, all this other stuff. So it can scale. It can scale massively. Um, we have huge tracts of land that are completely unusable for agriculture in any, any like row crop sense. The only thing it can be used is for animal husbandry or to leave it fallow, which is producing no food and actually damaging the area. And some people will say, well, we need to rewild it and just let deer and elk go on there and everything. It's like, okay, that's great. But then we get into a population control issue. If we don't, if you don't allow us to hunt it or harvest it, then those populations will grow, outstrip the carrying capacity of the grass, and then it will crash and we will have problems. So, mm. you know, like just rewilding and leaving the animals alone really isn't a, a viable solution. We have the desertification story. There are hundreds of millions of acres around the, the globe that have become non-productive for food, that we could re, you know, make them reproductive for food. 
if we reverse the desertification process and reintroduce animals on there and you can grow some crops on there and you can do some other stuff. So yeah, I, I think it's really, uh, even when people are saying, Oh, eat some, but uh, you know, let's just figure out how much we can produce and let's improve the food quality of the planet. And then, you know, on that, that food waste story, before the 1940s, the way that pork was almost exclusively raised was from human food waste. Hmm. So all of this food that we're wasting, all this stuff that gets thrown away at supermarkets, everything that gets landfilled, we would need to modify the way our, our legal, our laws are and, and some cultural things. But like, we should have a truck that goes around and collects the food scraps from all homes in an area. That stuff gets, gets sterilized and then fed to pigs. All of the food waste out of supermarkets gets sterilized and fed to pigs. Currently, we are taking grains and soybeans that could go to other purposes or just wouldn't need to be produced at all to feed to pigs. And somewhat a, a similar deal with chickens. Like chicken has always, things like chickens have never been an apex species on the planet. And, and they are now because of the intensification of, of the way that they, they are raised. So... Um, I do, again, that's like a long drawn out answer for the, yeah, eat some, but not too much. It, <clears throat> I don't actually mention that too much because you're already, um, skiing uphill just as it suggesting that this stuff isn't going to break the world, but mm. that it might actually be beneficial to enhance productivity there is it, then you really sound like a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks. I think you did a good job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I thought you. that was really interesting. One thing that just is making me chuckle right now is, you know, the idea of driving around and collecting all of our food waste and feeding it to pigs. I'm guessing that a lot of people would be horrified from an ethical perspective of feeding pigs, you know, expired Doritos and Pop-Tarts and Twinkies and whatever else, but then they're more willing to feed those things to people <laughs> than, than to the right. pigs. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, that is all fascinating. Um, thank you so much. And again, for people, I know we didn't cover everything as far as the meat topic is concerned, but you know, you spent years making an amazing book and an amazing film, and um, I highly recommend them to people. Um, I just have two quick listener questions. The first one is from Max, and I thought this was hilarious. He just writes, so hot dogs, paleo friendly with a question mark? Yes, particularly for kids. Um, I I can't do a full um, fifty grams of protein meal out of hot dogs. Like I'll have a hamburger, cut up the hot dog, and then the hot dog kind of breaks up the uh, the palate experience. Like it's a little bit different. I would find it very difficult to make that like a primary protein source. But people get all spun out about nitrates and all this other stuff. And I've done pretty pretty good blog post like discussing the nitrate story and it, it's kind of a non-issue so yes um hot dogs paleo friendly and mystery meat both at the same time <laughs> perfect and i really like this question from yoni from Asheville, north carolina i was planning on asking something along these lines and then he just captured the question better than i could have hoped to but and again i followed you for a long time and i think i I think I said this, but I admire you because I think you do this so well, but I'd love to hear how you think about it. He writes, I would like to know what Rob does to challenge his own beliefs or biases. Nutrition is such a complex, difficult topic to study. How does he stress test his views? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, 
That's a really good question. So like globally, the way that I look at the world on it, 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 like everything I do ends up getting informed by this stuff, but um, economics, thermodynamics, which is an energy transfer. It's kind of the, the branch of phases that deals with uh, energy and heat transfer, uh, economics, thermodynamics, and evolution. So whenever I'm thinking about anything, I try to run it through those filters. So like celiac disease is this gluten intolerance. It's an autoimmune condition. And, and, uh, I've heard people say, wow, it, it, it must suck. And I, I guess it shows that the person isn't very strong or isn't very robust because gluten makes them sick. And that's kind of a really easy first order logic to assume because you have a, a liability here that it's, you know, a liability else everywhere. But when you look at the, the evolutionary study of celiac disease, we find that people with the genes that predispose them to celiac disease, they are much, much less likely to experience severe illness from food poisoning, from bacterial huh. and viral gut infection. So the guts of folks that have a predilection towards celiac disease are on a heightened immune alert because this is probably oh. an adaptation to Neolithic living, living human on human, human on animals, shitting in our own water system and stuff like that. And so this is an adaptation to that. So it's highly beneficial for an agricultural type society, at least initially, but then there are some downsides that there, there is a, a tendency that the proteins in wheat can cause a cross reaction. Um, Huntington's disease is this horrible neurological degenerative condition. It's genetically driven. But what's interesting is two things. One, Huntington's appears to have some epigenetic triggers. So some features of our modern world appear to be making it worse and actually affecting people. But the other side is that people with Huntington's disease tend to have much lower rates of cancer, infectious disease. They have more children. They're more fertile. And this all occurs early in life. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's some interesting trade-offs there. And, and, you know, back to that original question, like how do I pressure test my assumptions? First, I try to stay in pretty good lane lines by just couching things from the perspective of economics, thermodynamics, and evolutionary biology. Like if somebody says ethanol is a great green fuel, you know, change my mind. And it's like, okay, well, when people produce corn to turn into ethanol as a fuel, what do they run their tractors with? Is it petrol or is it ethanol? It's like, oh shit, it's petrochemicals. Well, why do they do that? Well, because it actually takes more energy to produce ethanol than what you get out of it. So it's a boondoggle. It's complete waste of, of time and, and painting it as a a green fuel alternative is ridiculous. A really amazing green fuel alternative is actually different forms of nuclear energy because you get so much out with such little input. And that's a whole other like controversial topic. But I think to some degree, I just, I get maybe 80 or 85% to the truth of a topic by just staying within those lane lines of economics, thermodynamics and evolution. And then from there, the challenge is um, asking questions, producing hypotheses that um, that you can pressure test, that you can you can see. Well, does does this hold up to reality? Does it produce the desired results? If it doesn't, how do we need to go back and and modify all that that type of stuff? But I I feel like I've had a pretty good run at 
tackling things by using that framework first. And then if I make an assumption about something, you know, uh, low carb diets are the most appropriate thing for all humans. Okay, well, let's see how that runs out. Well, some people get broken on it and there's different situations where it doesn't work and it doesn't even really fit the totality of the evolutionary story, at least not always. So, you know, the hypothesis breaks down. You try to figure out how to reformulate it in a way that better predicts and represents reality. And then you, you run that back again, but that's kind of the process, but I, I, everything I do, um, I'm always, you know, I will put in a given term economic underpinnings of evolutionary advantage of, you know, and it, when I'm searching and trying to figure things out and I try to look at how people are looking at things from an energetics, specifically thermodynamics and economics, which is a resource allocation picture and then evolution, which is the adaptability of, of, you know, to complex systems, to a complex environment. And I, I think that that gets me pretty far down the field. And then from there, the failures are mainly like my lack of imagination at asking the right questions to then be able to follow on and, and do something good with that. It's not that the theories are flawed. It's just within that, it doesn't immediately give you all the answers. You still have to couch questions within those con concepts and, and be able to assess them. Well, amazing, Rob, this has been uh, fascinating and and just a real delight for me. It's been really fun. I was looking forward to this conversation and we went all over the place and the whole entire thing was really interesting. And uh, I think people are going to be doing some deep dives into all these different topics after this. Um, is there anything awesome, you want? Man. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything you want to plug? Um, I, I know you've got your element and the healthy yeah. rebellion. Yeah. I'd love to hear what you got going on. Yeah. Uh, we have an electrolyte company called Element, uh, very sodium centric, uh, kind of a long story behind it, but, uh, uh, folks can get a free sample pack of that. If they go to drink element and just, just navigate through and they'll find, you know, get a free sample pack. They pay shipping on it. Uh, it's a uh, drink element.com. And then most of what I do as far as like interaction at this point, I have social media accounts. I just put uh, what, what it's not a pump and dump, but it's like a post and run kind of, <laughs> kind of deal. <laughs> um, social media is just too toxic for me mm. right now, but we have an online community called the healthy rebellion. And that's where I spend the bulk, bulk of my time. We do tons of resets, uh, throughout the year, lots of good interaction. We break down scientific papers, but it's about a thousand people in there and, and really, really a cool, group of people it's kind of restored my faith in humanity to some degree after the last year year and a half <laughs> oh that's great okay i'll i'll link to all that for people listening element is lmnt and i'll link to that website in the show notes along with healthy rebellion um one quick question on the electrolytes it's it's sugar free which is really cool and unique and it tastes really good you sent me some samples and i've been loving them um are electrolytes helpful for someone who is eating two to 300 grams of carbs per day? Is that still something that is worth getting or worth adding? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it varies from person to person, but you know, even in the uh, American Council of Sports Medicine guidelines, they make the point that it, a person at high work output, like doing physical labor, hard, hard, you know, um, athletic activities and whatnot their sodium needs can be as high as seven to 10 grams per day. So, oh, wow. and if people start, people oftentimes assume that they aren't experiencing decreased performance due to electrolyte loss um, until they are cramping. 
cramping is the end stage. Like uh, mm. you, there's brain fog, lethargy, fatigue, um, loss of uh, fine motor skills and whatnot, uh, dramatically preceding that. So being on point with electrolytes is, is important, whether you're high carb or low carb, low carb is definitely more important to get on top of it because we tend to not retain that sodium. So you have to kind of be a little more active to stay on it. But yeah, even somebody eating a, a more modest, you know, 200, 300 grams of carbs a day, they're probably depending on heat, humidity, activity, they're going to do better, um, taking care of their electrolyte needs. And, you know, we encourage people to like 10 olives, provide a gram of sodium, a, a big pickle provides a gram of sodium. So, uh, you know, I love when people buy element, but we're mainly trying to educate people about proper hydration, which, um, is not water. It's proper electrolyte status it, it is, is really what defines hydration. Well, that's great. Um, this is my final question. What is something you've been especially grateful for? That's something I like to wrap up with. Oh man, definitely my kids. Like I, I initially did not think I was going to have kids, uh, met my wife, uh, immediately wanted kids. And then we had to build some business and do some stuff and, and, uh, pushed having kids back, but we were lucky to, to be able to have them. But, um, it gives me a different take on the world. And honestly, it reinvests me in the world because mm -hmm. it would be super easy for me, um, I feel like I'm a pretty good person and I've tried to generally make my, my life focused on helping people. Um, absent my kids, I could have easily used any of that talent for evil just as well. <laughs> and just be like, fuck all you assholes. Um, I'm, I'm going to take it, you know, make, make as much drama and intrigue and problems for everybody as I can, which I guess is what trolls generally do. But, um, I'm grateful for them because it, it really, it forces me to reinvest in humanity. You know, it's like, okay, I can't just give up. I can't just check out. Like I gotta stay in the fight because my kids are going to have to deal with all these knuckleheads at some point themselves. So I've got to, you know, create the, the best on-ramp for them that I, I can both in the way that I raise them and also in the world that they're going to go into. So I am infinitely grateful for my kids and my wife. Well, thank you for sharing that, Rob. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate your time today. Um, I learned a lot. I've been following you for a long time, but I still learned a lot from this conversation. I think people will be really excited about it. So thank you so much. I'd love to do it again. Anytime you want me to bring down property values, I will do it. We can we can go full, full crazy on the uh, regenerative ag scene next time. So okay. we can just make that the focus if you want to do that. Perfect. We'll just dive straight in. Cool. All right. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks Awesome, again. man. Take care. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that episode and another huge thank you to Rob Wolf. I put a ton of information in the show notes for this episode. If you want to dive deeper into anything we talked about, Rob has a podcast of his own called The Healthy Rebellion Radio. I put a link in the show notes for that. I also linked to all three of his books. There's links right there in your podcast app. And I linked to the Sacred Cow documentary film, which you can rent on Amazon Prime for, I think it's 2 or $3, and it's well worth a watch. If you want to get a sample pack of Element sugar-free electrolytes, Element is spelled L-M-N-T, 
I put a link to that special offer in the show notes as well. And I'm not getting anything for that. I just think their stuff is awesome. I've been taking it every day. You can find the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com, as well as a few ways to support the show if you feel inclined to do so. I'd love it. And that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to tune in again next week for a new episode. And we'll see you next time. Like we do.